This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. In this ongoing series on the business of art, uh, this is our next episode. And our guest today is David Yeager, president of the University of the Arts. And also with me are Professor Jerry Wind, uh, marketing emeritus professor at Wharton and founder of the SEI Center at Wharton. And uh, my colleague, Grace Cho, the CEO of Orange Genius. Uh, welcome to you all. To uh, Thank you for joining the Knowledge at Wharton podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Grace, so would you like to lead off by starting to ask the first question? Yes. Uh, David, uh, it's such a great thrill and honor to be with you today. Uh, I wanted to learn more about, uh, I always like to start with the background. What got you interested in art in the first place? What got you here? So I've always been interested more in creativity than necessarily art per se, Mm -hmm. and what drives creativity. And um, I think my first beginning was looking at creative writing as an outlet and then became interested in in drawing and painting. But always for me, it was about um, how do I express something in a different way? How do I attract an audience? And how do I deliver content that can be taken in through art mm-hmm. versus if the same content might be um, might be produced in a different way, would be seen as sort of sometimes uh, trying to um, push an agenda or have a particular point of view. And I've always thought about my particular art as a way of getting people to think about things in a very different way. And many times they don't even realize some of the issues that they're thinking about at the same time. So for me, um, my life is about being trying to be creative in everything I do. Um, as a university president, I think about um, how do I not follow the rules? How do I think about things in a different way? Um, just because we've done it before, is that a good reason for doing it again? Um, and trying to get faculty and students to think about that, and especially students. I'm very student-centric and trying to always get students to understand what opportunities they have in being at University of the Arts Mm -hmm. and what opportunities they have if they're very creative and how that creativity can be translated in many different disciplines. Mm. I wish you would take this as a guideline to all presidents of all universities. Yes. Not necessarily only University of the Art, but any university. It's refreshing to hear that, because they don't always think think this way, and the innovative sort of constantly, what's new? What's a new way to think about it? Yeah, and that our students are changing, and that it's really important for me to be in touch with the language that they're using, the Mm -hmm. way they're learning, the way they're thinking about things. Mm -hmm how technology has changed, how social media has changed, but also how they engage with each other has really changed. You know, it's, this is a different generation that thinks differently about things. And um, having been doing this for a long time, you can see different generations that are focused on themselves or on community-based mm-hmm. ideas or on social-based ideas. Mm-hmm. And 
I think it's important as, as someone who um, is an academic to be aware of both our students, understand the position they're coming from, and try to help them be better at the kinds of things that they're doing. Uh, tell us a little bit about University of the Arts, uh, the student body, the makeup, where they come from. Yeah. So we're a 141-year-old institution, mm -hmm. um, which has good side and bad side. I joke about this. It's, I'd like to take some of the good things, but um, some of the things I'm constantly dealing with is changing culture, because um, I believe culture really does determine a lot of the things that we do and um, how we teach as a culture, how we believe our, in ourselves as a faculty or as a culture, um, even the courses, you know. Um, you have a choice sometimes. You were educated 25 years ago and you're very good at certain kinds of things and so you believe that's what we should be teaching students or you believe that's a basic knowledge that's important but maybe it's not the exact thing we really need to be teaching our students now. So I think we have a really great history and really great alumni. Um, one of the two unique things about us is that we're one of two private standalone schools of the art that teach all of the arts. Mm. So we teach all of the arts and CalArts in California, and those are the only two. And we're the only university of the arts in the United States. So there's one in Berlin, there's one in London, one in Hong Kong. Um, and that separates us out, in, I hope, in the way we think about things. Mm -hmm. So we, we want to be um, razor sharp in certain areas, but we also want to be big picture focused as a university and, and big picture thinking. And, um, and um, it's allowed us to be currently working on a PhD program, which none of our similar schools could do because they don't have the status of being a university. Mm -hmm. And the PhD program we're working on is a program on creativity. So we're really looking at creativity across all disciplines and can we build a program that a scientist might come to, an artist might come to, an engineer might come to, a business person might come to. And the only thing that's in common is that we're all trying to understand what are the drivers for creative people? What are the drivers to be creative? Um, can you? How much of creativity is taught? How much of creativity is not taught? It's part of the person. Um, and what's exciting to me about this program, I've been thinking about it for probably 10 years now, is um, what I don't know. It's always more exciting than what I do know because I really don't know a lot of things of what's going to happen when you bring this mix together. And we're looking for people who have been not the traditional student who's finished undergraduate wants to go on to PhD. We're looking for mostly people who've been out there in the field, maybe have a master's, want to come back. Mm. Um, it's a low residency program. We're going to match them up with mentors. Um, we're going to ask Jerry to, to join us. Um, but to really think about um, why are there 10 people out there that we all might decide have been the most creative in the last 10 years? You know, some are easily appointed. You could say Steve Jobs, you know, you could say uh, Jeff Bezos, you know, you could say what has gotten them to that position? And then you can look at other people in the arts that maybe are lesser known. What separated them out? And um, 
I grew up kind of in a funny space. I was both an athlete and an artist. Mm -hmm. And so I use the analogy that I grew up with a lot of very talented athletes mm -hmm. who never made it. They didn't have a work ethic. Mm -hmm. They didn't really follow through on the things that they should have. And when I talk to our students, I say the same thing. You can be the most talented student, but if you don't have a work ethic, if you don't have the drive to be successful, if you don't have the ability to pick up knowledge in all kinds of ways, my odds are that you're not going to be as successful as you could have been, mm. you know. Picking up on your point on creativity, I wonder, you know, uh, is creativity something that can be taught or is it inborn? And if it can be taught, what are some of the barriers to creativity that need to be overcome? Yeah. Uh, I was wondering if you could speak to that from the perspective of an art school, but Jerry, since you have been teaching creativity at Wharton, I wonder if you could also, Jerry, mm -hmm. speak to it from the perspective of a business, uh, business students. So I think creativity can be taught. I agree. Can you be the most creative person in the field just by being taught? That piece I'm not sure of. Probably not. Right. So I think you could add to almost anyone to become more creative. And I think, you know, the corporate world right now is really struggling with that. How do they create more creative middle management? Um, how do they create more creative C-level people? Um, so I think you absolutely can teach it. And that's really what we're thinking about relative to our program. We can teach people to be more creative. But equally as important, we can teach people to help recognize creativity within their organization, which I think is, is even a more major problem, that sometimes they don't know how to even decide on who the creative people are. You know, I have a lot of students of mine who work um, at Google. And, you know, I follow Google pretty much since they began. And one of the things that always fascinated me was that they were hiring very diverse creative people. So they got to a period where they are hiring musicians. Um, and they were hiring musicians for very particular reasons because they're also good programmers. But they program very differently than a computer scientist programs. <laughs> and for a company like Google who was trying to really break the norms and break the molds, that became a really interesting thing. Um, I'm not sure, and I just had this discussion with some Google people just uh, three weeks ago, I'm not sure with the growth of Google, I'm not sure that their management has, is doing what they used to do. They've grown so big, they don't train as like they used to. A lot of people are in management that have moved through very quickly. And I think they're going to struggle trying to figure out um, how to identify the creative people, how to allow them to be creative, because that's another thing. Um, and it's funny, because uh, I was at a dance event uh, Saturday night. Um, and Sunday, and one of my colleagues brought their six-year-old son. And uh, he works on the development side, and he's not a particularly creative person, but his son is very creative, he's six years old. And we all said to him, just let him be creative. Don't take it out of him. You know, it's like, don't put him into this trying to create something. So I think it's a combination of letting people um, go in a direction, but there's certainly... Um, lots of things you can do with almost any group to get them to think more creatively than they thought an hour ago. I, I agree with David completely. Uh, I look at creativity as a trait which is not normally distributed. The extreme, the Picassos, the Mozart, they don't need us. 
I'm going to leave them alone. Don't touch them. Everyone else, uh, we can move them toward being more creative. And there are tools. And what I taught creativity, I basically focus on tools at the individual level. But David mentioned another very important dimension, which is how do you identify uh, creative people? And the challenge there is how do you make sure that you don't constrain your creativity? And there is a lot of the kind of concern, actually, that the educational system that we have, starting K-12, not only university, kills creativity. Yes. Because all they're doing, they're focusing on school solution. Yeah. You know, there's one school solution to try and basically to kill creativity. I will add only in one other dimension where you can enhance creativity, and this is by basically working on the organizational architecture. How do you create a culture of creativity? How do you create processes that encourage this? How do you create a structure that allows this? So if you have a hierarchical structure, like most universities, you're killing creativity. What you really want to create is kind of a structure which is much more co-creation culture. What's the incentive? You know, kind of what is the performance measure incentive? So basically, so when I taught a course, it's basically focused on um, identifying kind of the tools that will help you and provide the students with the ability actually to implement uh, the, the tools, then to try to how to identify creativity. And here I used to bring people as guest lecturers from diverse fields, all the way from scientists, you know, to artists, to curators, to a choreographer from all diverse fields, and including business, to try to show that creativity and the characteristics of creative people are actually pretty similar. And uh, one of the things that we found is that, you know, I probably had over the years like 40 different disciplines, all the, basically the, the same principles applied to all of them. Constraints and hence creativity, for example, and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then what you, would do, you do want to emphasize is also what can you do from a leadership point of view in terms of designing the, the organizational architecture and the network, because increasingly it's important now the network in such a way that will enhance creativity. Right. You know, I, I mean, everything Jerry says is, is, is right on for me also. It's, it, you know, what's frustrating to me being, um, having spent most of my life in a traditional university is that creativity is not really thought about as an important attribute of leadership within the university. Mm -hmm. There are other things that are thought about. And yet, at the end of the day, the most successful people and programs are based on someone who stepped up, who was really creative and took things in a very different way. And it's really easy to point to those examples and really difficult to still get people to think that's important. And, you know, I, I gave a talk a number of years ago at the National Academy of Science on the relationship of creativity in the arts and creativity in science, because I think there's, they're absolutely similar. You know, mm-hmm. the way a scientist who's really creative, who's, who solves something that nobody else has solved, has come about from a very different point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, part of my research in the last I don't know how many years, 15 years, has been in pediatrics at Johns Hopkins. And I have a faculty appointment in pediatrics. I still have a faculty appointment, although I'm doing very little work. And the head of pediatrics, and Hopkins invented pediatric medicine, the head of pediatrics brought me in because he realized he needed someone else to see things differently than he did. And the first meeting, I walked with him through the hospital, I'll never forget this, and I said, George, how do you work in here? It's so noisy. And he turned to me and said, I don't hear anything. Hmm. And from then on, he always talked about that I wear different glasses than he does, Hmm. and I get him to see things differently than he's seen them. Hmm. And together, we collaborated on a lot of very interesting things because 
I didn't have any, I wasn't worried about making a mistake in terms of questioning things within a hospital, which is one of the things that kills creativity, that everybody's scared that someone might think they don't know someone, and so they don't ask a question. And I talk about myself very simply when I do my consulting. I'm part Forrest Gump, because I ask all the dumb questions. Mm -hmm. And I'm part a piece of sand and an oyster. So I'm going to irritate you until we get it right. Mm -hmm. And you know, I can sit there with the docs and say, I don't understand. Why are you doing this way? This doesn't make any sense. And they'll right. say, oh, I think because we've always done it that way. Right. You know, right. OK, now let's talk about why you're doing it that way. And you know. Most of my projects that were successful were Forrest Gump projects. I mean, I remember coming in once and saying they had a problem with a, um, an emergency case and they were trying to order online meds and someone made a mistake. And I remember saying to George one day, I said, look at all the monitors that you have around here that we order things. Who makes the decision on the placement of the monitors and where they are? And he said, I don't know. And I said, I'm going to write down on a piece of paper how the decisions are made. You go find out, and then we'll talk about it. And all I wrote down is, physical plant probably puts them wherever they want. <laughs> and sure enough. And you have a 4'10 person and a 6'5 person, trifocals, bifocals. Everything works perfectly if everything is fine. <laughs> when everything starts to fall apart and you have to make a decision. And so, you know, I think creativity sees things differently than other people also. It's not how they do things. I walk into a room with people all the time and I'll make some comments and I'll say, what are you talking about? I didn't even see those things. Mm -hmm. So how you see things is really different also. I have one comment on what you just said about the similarity between the creativity in the arts and creativity in the sciences. It seems to me that what's common to both is the ability to exercise your imagination. Uh, and that's sort of the common theme that links both those things. How, how can corporate world unleash the imagination uh, at a time when there is so much risk aversion? And, and, and we were talking earlier about especially the middle management. If there's one group of people who are especially risk averse. Right. It's, it's the middle managers because they, 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 they are just, they just have enough to lose by taking risk. How do you come yeah. up with a creative, a culture that allows the imagination and which allows people to take risks? You know, I think first of all you have to believe that at the end of the day that is going to drive success, stockholder value, money, whatever you measure things. Um, and that it's not a short-term, you know, it's not like yesterday you believe one thing and today I believe something else and all of a sudden I'm going to create something new. I mean, again, if you look at Google, the amount of, um, I'll put it in quotes, mistakes or wrong decisions they make would bankrupt many other companies. But then they have the wins that put everything back in place. And for them, it's being first. It's being on the top. And so the there's no sense of taking risk is a bad thing because they know if they don't take risk and whatever percentage they've decided they're going to not work, they can't be on the top. You know, I, I remember years ago I was working for a tech company and we were competing on a project with IBM. 
We had the right solution. IBM did not have the right solution. But I knew the client was going to select IBM. And the reason they were going to select IBM is because if they picked us and it didn't make it, they might lose their job. But if they picked IBM and they didn't make it, they would always say, well, I went with IBM. You know, what could you expect? And so that's a cultural thing that has to, from my perspective, for a company to be successful. I take risks here as president of the university, and you know, I get pinged. And a lot of people don't like to get pinged. Faculty ping me, staff ping me, like, I can't believe you're doing this. I can't believe you're doing Because um, for me, there's only two choices. You're either going to be status quo, you're going to follow everybody else, or you're going to take leadership and take the risk because it's something you believe in, and the risk is modified. It's not just wild risk, it's risk modified by a process, a procedure, a history, um, experience, and all those other kinds of things. But so what would be an example of a risk that paid off and one that didn't pay off? Um, so for me, um, I'm involved in probably three risky things right now. I don't know where they're gonna go. <laughs> um, but, um, and, they're, and they're all a little different. Um, so, last year I challenged all my senior leadership in a sense. I, I, I positioned um, my vice presidents and, and I said to them, we're all venture capitalists in a matter of speaking. We all invest money. And in, universities don't think about that, but for me, that's what I'm doing. I'm saying, I'm gonna invest in your program. No, your program I'm not. I'm gonna hire two new people in your program. But we don't think about ourselves as investors. So I went to all the deans and said, I'm an investor. I have a pool of money. Come to me with a proposal. You tell me what the criteria is for success and then we'll decide if that criteria matches our criteria. That was risky in a sense because people are accustomed to doing it. And I have to say, um, I love that. <laughs> the responses I got back showed me that it was a little far out um, and they didn't get it. This year I said it a little differently. I said, okay, I want to be top 10 in certain disciplines maybe top 15, maybe top 20. Pick out a program and show me how that program has the opportunity to be a top tier program, what it would cost to invest in it, and why. And I'm waiting for those now. Um, I would have loved if a dean or a president ever did that to me. No one ever did that to me. I was always going to them with, I have this great idea, you know, would you invest in this? Um, so I was really surprised in some ways, you know, even in art school. Yes. That, um, but that's the business piece you were talking yes. about. Yes. That confused them that we're a business. When I interviewed for the position, I remember saying to the uh, chair of the search committee, I said, if this place is going to be successful, number one, we have to run it as a very successful business because that will allow me to have the money to do what I'm doing. We just did a bond rating. This place had never gone through a bond rating because wow. we're trying to get a loan. Mm -hmm. And it was fascinating though, they were all 23 year olds doing our bond rating, um, <laughs> but they didn't understand us at all. They didn't even understand that our real estate, which is almost all paid off, is the most valuable real estate in the city. And so they would say to us, well, 
we just came from so-and-so university and, and they're all out in the country where if they go bankrupt, their real estate has no value. I get a call at least twice a week from developers to say, you know, you own that, we own that building right there on Pine Street. We'd like to convert that to condos. We'd like to buy it from you or one of our other businesses. So it was really interesting. So I'm here, I'm dealing with supposedly financial people um, who don't necessarily understand. They're, they're, they're living in a formula. It was very clear to me after meeting with them for three hours, they have a real formula. They ask formula questions. We either fit into their formula or we don't fit into their formula. In our case, we don't fit into their formula. Um, and all they cared about was a sort of a, you know, you've only been here two years. Um, we need more time to see what you're going to do. You know, it's like, okay, look at my past. Look at what I've done. Don't even look at me. Look at the institution of where we're going. So, um, so that's one thing. So why don't you push this, your experiment, one more level? Go to zero-based budget. We, we're doing Tell that this year. Next year. No, we're doing that this year. We, we're actually, last year we did, you have to turn back 10%. Okay? This year we're also doing zero base and turn back 10%. Right, that sounds great. You know? It's, but the problem, Jerry, is it's interesting. If you don't have the background and experience... They cannot relate to it. They don't, they relate yes, it. they don't know how to get to it. It's, no. it's, it's a language issue. So sometimes when you, you just said it yourself, you, you say it in one way versus right. it's the exact same mission, but said in a different way. Because sometimes when, you know, when I talk to educators, it's about the language. Yeah. I think partly that is, I think partly people have avoided certain things. Mm. You know, I ran a tech company, and so... Um, we were an SAP integrator, but we also used SAP. So I had to look at numbers every single day. Mm -hmm. um, I built dashboards for CFOs in Fortune 100 companies for a number of years when they were buying, buying and integrating legacy systems and legacy companies, and they couldn't get the data they needed. So to me, it's always been a problem that's interesting. Um, and there's not too many problems that I'm not interested in that I can't, if it's a visual problem. And this was a visual problem. So how do you visualize financial information in a really clear way that's really complex every morning at 7 o'clock in the morning, every afternoon at 12 o'clock, and so on. Um, it's funny, I had a meeting with my CFO today and I said, Stephen, I'm not sure we don't need to spend more time educating at least one person in each school on the budget because we have deans sometimes last year who turned away projects and then turned back money at the end of the year. Like, who turns back money at the end of the year? You know, it's like, I never turned back. I mean, I was overspent until they screamed at me. Um, so, so I think it's partly that. Partly, we're going to be making some big changes, um, which are, you know, I, I sort of I hired a provost last year, and so I've sat back and waited until we're and, and we're going to make some changes. But um, because I think part of um, part of what I have to do is, and since I really believe culture rules over everything else, is that you have to get people in place at senior management and middle management who are going to take risks and actually push me. Like if I'm the only one who's doing the pushing, that doesn't make sense. They need to be pushing from their point of view. 
and we have some of those and we don't have some of those. So that's always an issue. Um, what bothers me about large research institutions is they become so um, yes, that I don't know how you, I don't know how anybody can ever get anything done anymore. And it's one of the reasons I left the University of California because I realized I had two choices: um, be a provost or president at a large institution and be part of killing myself trying to change the hierarchical structure, mm -hmm. or go to a place that's smaller where I know I can do it, and I could do it in probably three years. Um, and it was a very conscious decision that I, I just didn't want to spend the rest of my life wasting time because there's so much time wasted. The amount of meetings that you have to go through to get anything done um, and the amount of committees. Um, you know, it's funny, when I got here, I found, I looked at some data and I found, like, I don't understand why this is happening. And then went back and did the research and found out there's a reason this happened. And I called some people and I said, I don't understand this. And they said, well, five years ago, exactly when you looked at the data, we made this change. I said, okay, tomorrow, we're changing back to this old way. Now, at University of California, that would have taken me 18 months to do that. Seven committees, four different people. I just said, we're doing it. Mm -hmm. And I'll catch the flack from some committee that says, you know, you should have asked me or something like that. But we can't wait. Yeah. You know, we can't wait for those kinds. At least I can't wait for those well, things. Well, you know, this is the key to answering Mukul's earlier question about the, the challenge with middle management, which is how do you empower them? How do you empower the, the kind of the middle management to try to take this to make decisions? And the ways we address this, at least, at least three things. One is by what David was talking about, changing the culture. And Google has been very effective in doing it by, for example, by allowing everyone to spend 20% of their time on whatever they want to. Right. If you want funding for a bigger project, yes, convince one of your friends and then we'll you know, apply and we'll give you funding. So culture is definitely an important area. Two is there are tools. There are tools that you can actually use, methodologies such as, which you're familiar with now, with idealized design. So we can, there are ways in which we can basically create this environment that does with the design, kill your brain, sort of a variety of approaches you could use as tools. And the third is create a culture of experimentation. Because if you create a culture, if David will ask each one of his deans, come for me next year with a zero-based budget and at least one major experiment or a series of experiments that can make us in the top 10. And you will not get your budget approved unless you bring this experiment. Now, everyone knows not every experiment will succeed. So the minute you do it, you're basically creating a culture that basically people are willing to take risks. Yep. So that's, that's the way you can actually deal with this uh, major problem of government mental management. Yeah, it's, it's um, it always, for me, gets down to culture. You know, if you don't spend the time building that <coughs> culture, um, it won't work. My first and second and third town hall meeting when I got here, my president before me would put up 30, 40 slides and just go through all this. I put up one slide, and one slide said we. You know, and then I talked about why if it's not us together, we're not going to succeed. You know, that's cultural difference. Mm -hmm. You can't be those people over there, the administration, the president, you know. This whole kind of thing is kills culture, and it kills it in corporate America, and it certainly kills it in universities where it feels like it's us and them. 
and in silos. In silos. In silos. Exactly. You know, what's killed the university is in silos. Right. And so I also physically get out of the office. I pop into things. I go to events. I know the students. I know the faculty. I fund things. You know, um, when I first got here, I was here three weeks, and someone came over to me and said, our jazz band was just selected to compete for the top jazz bands in the United States. They picked six. But it's in um, Monterey, California, and it'll cost us $25,000, and we can't go. I said, what do you mean you can't go? Get all the stuff, I'll raise $25,000 for you. So they went out there, I flew out, and they did an okay job. They were really nervous, first time doing this thing. And I sat through the competition, I went to the band leader and said, I have to go up to San Francisco for an event, I'm leaving, let me know what happens, but you guys didn't do that well. Um, this year, last year, they got invited again. So I raised $25,000 for them. They were much better prepared. I flew out again. They finished, and I went to the back, and I said, Matt, you guys won. You know, he goes, really? I go, yeah, you really won. And they did win. Um, and so they got invited to play at Monterey Jazz Festival as the number one jazz band. But two things. Number one, I was willing to help make a decision. Number two, I was willing to raise money. Number three, I was willing to take a risk where someone would say, why did you, you know, it's real easy, the president, why did you go out to the jazz band? You didn't come to my event. Or why did you raise money for them? You didn't raise money for me. You know, which is what I get all the time, no matter what I do, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, you just have to say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with a certain amount of horses, like you go with a certain amount of people, and um, I'm a people investor rather than a program investor. Right. I need to have a person that I'm investing in in a program. I don't care what the pro. It could be the greatest name program. If I don't have the right horses, never have I seen it succeed. So I invest in people. That's the same as venture capital. Yes. Yes. VC invests yes. in people. They don't invest in a program because That's program right. change. Exactly. The pivot. Exactly. Most business plans pivot, so it's really investing in people. Exactly. That's really great. David, when I hear you, I find it so refreshing to have somebody on the university side to talk so much like a business leader and that sense of urgency. Because when it comes to educational side, even though they're doing wonderful things, they seem to be moving at a glacial speed. Yes. So your approach must be so disruptive to whatever system there was. Uh, how do you instill that sense of urgency with your leadership team? And you know, what kind of ways do you make them feel comfortable to have that courage to do so? So, it's a great question. Um, I, I think I try to do it with a number of different ways. The beginning way I always try is to use data mm. to show them what's working and what's not working. And most times the data reflects what's working. So, for instance, I have one top tier program. And the data shows that that program, a lot of students are applying for. It's very diverse. They're applying from all other places. We spend less money on recruiting students and all the kinds of things. And then I ask a simple question. When I was interviewed, one of the questions they asked me was, how was I going to grow enrollment? And I have to say, I do my homework, so it wasn't like I just gave up even though I acted sort of like I was throwing an answer off the cuff, I had really done my homework, and I said, enrollment's not your problem. And they got very angry with me. Mm -hmm. 
They said, how could you say that? Now, this is a Fortune 50 CEO who was chairing the search. How could you say that? Enrollment is our problem. And I said, it's not. And I was waiting. He goes, okay, so what do you think the problem is? I said, first of all, enrollment is a symptom. And if you're treating a symptom, you're going to treat it every year. And I don't like to do the same thing over and over again. So we have to treat the problem, and that will fix the symptom. But fixing a problem takes much more time, much more thoughtfulness, much more creativity, and much more energy. But we will get there. So we're treating, in our case, what I consider a symptom of something. So one of the issues we had was, as good as we are, we weren't very well known. So I called Jerry and said, help me find a PR firm. I need a young, I want an all women if possible, young PR firm who understands integrated social marketing. And Jerry put me in touch with someone who was in New York, he's now in, in Washington, who put me in touch with a couple of firms, I interviewed the firms, and we found a great firm. So for me, it's, it's sort of like, okay, if I really believe that, now I have, you know, well, everybody hears me, we have a, a, a marketing firm, they're in Philadelphia. Well, I had watched them for a year, they're not a marketing firm at all. They don't, they don't think they understand even what marketing is, I mean, you know. Um, so I had to show people, because you can talk about it, but you to show them that we could take, it, or take a charge, interview a company, bring them in, um, and then at the same time, um, I had a vice president leave, who the board of trustees loved. And they loved for the wrong reason. They loved because, as someone said to me, she did everything but put candy on their pillows. Mm. Um, and so they wanted me to hire someone. And they all said, I have a friend, I have this. And I said, I'm in no rush. I don't need to hire. I, I know that side of the house very well. They're going to report to me. I'm going to have the directors report to me. I'm going to save $250,000. I'm going to invest that in other things. Um, in every board meeting, they'll say to me, well, have you hired anybody? I said, have you seen a difference in the way we're doing things? Yeah, actually, you're, you're actually raising more money and doing this. I said, that's right. We're actually doing more with less because we have the right people. So for me, sometimes it's sort of like, take the bullets. You know, um, a board doesn't threaten me. I mean, I, you know, if they don't like me, they can fire me. That's how I look at things. Um, I, I know I've been doing this 30 years. I know what I'm doing. Um, they dabble in it. It's part of being a board, and they're a great board. But my role is to, is to educate them and convince them that the things we're doing. And so now I see a totally different board, the same people who are really engaged in the kind of things that I'm trying to do. So I came to them when I first got here, maybe six months, and said, one of the things we need is a new residence hall. And their first reaction was, we can't afford a new residence hall. We can't, you know, it's like, we can't, you know, it's way too expensive. And I said, maybe, but I'm going to do an investigation and then I'll come back to you. I don't know if it's too expensive. So I probably interviewed 15 to 20 developers and finance people. How do you finance these things? What is the opportunity here? Here's what I need from you. Well, 15 months later, we have a meeting on Wednesday, a three-hour meeting with a developer and the architects, and we're really now at a point where we're getting down to can we actually do this. And the paradigm I changed was, I don't need to own the building. Mm. Can we just take the money students 
pay and build a new building. And then we have four other valuable real estate. I mean, that building on Pine, can we convert those to condos? Could, should we sell them? Should we make them apartments? They're all endowments, the way I think about it. We owe no money on it, so if we can make an apartments, that's an endowment for us. Right. We have four of these buildings. So now all of a sudden, if this works, if that's a wash, if we can do it as a wash or make a little money, we now have three or four other buildings we could keep or we could do something else. So now, it's very funny, everybody's like very, you know, <laughs> when, when are you gonna have all the information on this and everything like that? Um, so for me, it, it's... Creativity. It's creativity, it's thinking differently about what they were thinking about. Well, it's two things, it's creativity, but it's also courage. It is. So you need a combination of the That's creativity right. and the courage, the conviction and the courage That's to do right. it. Because a lot of people can come up with the idea, but they will not have the courage to go to the board of MSDC or the, you know, the first beautiful example of, no, admit, you know, admission is not our problem. You know, so right. basically you need the courage of conviction and, you know, and, and make it happen. So true. Yeah. I, I always felt oh, that sorry. in addition to creativity and courage, there is a third component. Yes. And that's passion. Because as you are going, pursuing the path, that your courage requires and your creativity suggests and your courage mm -hmm. allows you to pursue. You need passion to yes. overcome all the obstacles mm -hmm. that are going to come up. I have a fourth one. Okay, well, it, it, also gets, um, <laughs> it also gets people to join you. The passion yes. does get people right. to yes. join you. Exactly. Um, it makes it a collective yes. effort. Yes. yes, you have to have that charisma to drive people. But the fourth one is, I could be talking to you as the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. You speak as if you are. So it's, it's highly unusual for me to speak to the education space to have this kind of conversation. I think you're brilliant that way. Uh, how do you instill, so at, there's a base of business knowledge that you have. How do you spread that amongst your students, among the faculty who perhaps have not grown up thinking that creative people, artists, shouldn't have this kind of knowledge. How would you do that? So it's interesting. When I first got here, I said, um, one of the things I really want to grow is our professional practice. Mm -hmm. And I got lots of pushback mm -hmm. from faculty. Like, we don't have the credit hours to do that. You'll be taking away from our credit hours. And again, it's that concept that each faculty believes what they teach is by far the most important thing and what they impart to students is by far the most important thing that any student could ever learn. Mm -hmm. And I understand that. Um, very rarely is that exactly true. But um, So I always flip it back and say, let's forget about what you need. Let's think about what our students need. Mm -hmm. Let's talk to our students. So we have an alumni event in Los Angeles. Uh, when I first got here, I fly out. And the question I asked them, and I like, what worked, what did you learn that ha made you successful? And what did we not do? And it was very clear. Every one of them said, I love the school. Best experience in terms of being artists. I didn't know anything about the business when I left. It's taken me a year to understand what an agent is, what they get, to, you know, all those kind of things. So I went back to the faculty and I said, look, here's what I'm hearing. Great job in terms of these things. These are the pieces we're missing. We have to move in that direction. So the first thing we did is we started growing our internship program, because I'm a firm believer in internships. Mm -hmm. um, but professional internships, that we really control them, they're not 
carrying coffee, they're doing things. And so we're starting with our internship program. I just last week hired someone who's doing, my, who's doing special projects for me, and she's fantastic. And one of her special projects is I want an inventory, I want to understand all of the professional practices we do. I want to put it under one umbrella. Um, I want us to start having courses that teach the business. So we have a very successful program called the business, uh, it's called MBEC Music, Business and Entrepreneurship. Started about four years ago. It's grown from 30 students to 200 students, wow. okay? Um, they bring in business people, they bring in lawyers, they bring in accountants, they bring in finance people, they bring in thinkers. Um, and why it's so successful is those kids early on, for whatever reason, identified they want to be in the business of music. Mm -hmm. So they want to understand the music, but they also want to understand the business. So we're going to take some of that model and do the business of art, the business of theater, the business of dance. Um, you know, we're still trying to figure out, there are many of the courses that we don't have to have for art, you know, the same course would cover all those students. So one of the arguments I get from faculty, well, a lot of our students don't want to do that. And my argument is a lot of our students don't even know what that is that they don't want to do. It's the same thing with internships. They say, well, they don't want internships. Well, they've never done an internship. They don't know how valuable it is for their career. Part of our job is not to let students slip through just because they say they don't want to do it. Right. Part of our job is to say, this is really important. Right. And for, God, for 30 years, I taught the business of art class on and off for years. And my first job, I got such faculty hated that we were teaching this class. Students, five and six years later, and then when Facebook started to happen, with Facebook we say, that class you taught me was the most important class. It helped me do this, this, and this. Amazing. So I know it works. It's just, for whatever reason, um, maybe it's because they're not comfortable there. I'm not sure what it is. But I, I think it's great. I, I did a lecture series, which eventually I'd like to do here. On, it, was, it was on creativity. And what I did is I brought in five people a year from different industries who I thought were creative. And we'd have 350 to 500 people there. So I brought in a banker one year, I brought in a designer, I brought in um, a writer. And I wanted students to understand that creativity comes in lots of different forms. And yet these people can be very successful financially or in a business, mm -hmm. yes. and they're very creative. And instead of talking about it, I wanted to show them. Outstanding. You know, just this is the kind of thing. So um, I just met with the provost at Jefferson uh, two weeks ago, because he heard I was going to, he said, I'd like to partner with you if you do that. I'll, you know, we'll help you and do something and, and partner in terms of creativity and, you know, design and, um, um, and sort of big thinking. So, you know, we have a lot, the, the great thing about my job is I have a lot of things I could do. There's a lot of opportunities. I'm not going to be bored. Um, but um, part of my job now is to hire some people, which I continue to do, who also believe in the same mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. So I'm not the only one sort of driving the ship. It has to be driven from yeah. lots of different places. So our most successful program has the most entrepreneurial and creative 
the school director. You know, there's almost nothing that I run by her. I'll go by and say, Deepfake, what about it? Yeah, let's go do it. You know, um, my sort of least successful programs are less willing to, to take risk, to experiment, to challenge their own faculty. Um, it's sort of like, you know, I don't, uh, you know, um, and so, you, you know, you have to make changes at some point. You know, incidentally, on entrepreneurship and music, you may want to look at the program at the Berkeley School of Business, at the Berkeley School, School of Music. music. They're really doing an incredible work on entrepreneurship. Yes. And interestingly, they hired the guy who's running the program there. He's a former musician who came to Berkeley to, from Cyprus, actually, it's to Panos. play... Right. To play, play yes. guitar, okay. play guitar, yes. and he realized that he does not have the talent to become a first kind of world class right. guitarist, and he became entrepreneur, yeah. made a lot of money, and then came back and started this program there, and it's very very successful. Work. Yeah. So you can actually you know kind of first of all the pe people are running your program may really learn something yeah. from their program, yeah. but also look at the possibility of among your alumni to yeah. hire some people like him who kind of basically kind of created the whole program. Right. No, it's, um, the opportunities are there. What's crazy is they've been staring people in the face for so long, and the big question I have is why? I mean, I go to president's meetings of schools of art and design. I was that one four weeks ago. And I could stick needles in my eyes sometimes for the kind of conversations we're having, you know? I mean, seriously, they're, um, they're operational things that are like, okay, but like... Um, but then that's a wrong benchmark for you. So don't go to these meetings. Well, you I have to because to, we belong to a consortium, but then I go to more interesting meetings right, for myself. You should go to meetings with the disruptors. Yes. With Google, Facebook, Amazon. That's the meetings that will provide you kind of the, the type of inspiration. Absolutely. No, and if you, if you see any meeting that I should go to, send it to me, because what I'm always, I always talk about the meetings I sort of give away all my energy and come back, and the meetings I come back totally energized. I'll tell you right now, the one next year. Okay. December 2nd, 3rd, in, we're not sure where, we may do it in the, the West Coast, and it will be my fifth year on reimagine education. Okay. So we have a global competition for the most innovative pedagogical approaches in higher education. And some of the, the speakers are, and panels are amazing. We'd Good. love you to come as yeah, a speaker there. Yeah. And, but also encourage the school here. They're really coming with innovative pedagogical approaches yeah. to submit to the competition. Okay. And we do have some people who are really thinking about it. I mean, Truly innovative new approaches yes. as opposed to just standing in front of the oh, yeah. classroom. Yeah. Or deciding everything should be online. Let <laughs> me. Thank all of you for a great conversation. I really appreciate your speaking with Knowledge at Wharton. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.